So I, I, want you, I want you to picture yourself standing on the edge of a flowing pool, okay? Uh, right before the sun comes up. So the sky maybe is getting lighter, but you can't quite see the sun yet. It's kind of a chill in the air. You've been up all night uh, praying, reading scripture, uh, you're tired, exhausted, and yet also exhilarated. Because this moment, you standing on the edge of this pool, is a moment that you've been waiting for potentially for years. And as the sun comes up, you get undressed and you wade into the water that's in front of you. And as you walk into the water, you're kind of keeping your arms closed. It's cold, it's chilly. And as you're standing there, you are asked the question, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? You say, I believe. And with that, some strong arms grab you and they dunk you under the water. And as you come back up, you're asked a second question. Do you believe in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Spirit and Mary the Virgin and was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was dead and buried and rose on the third day, alive from the dead and ascended to the heavens and sits at the right hand of the Father who will come again to judge the living and the dead? And you say, I believe. A second time, under the water. Then a third question. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? And you cry out, I believe, dunked under the water again. And you come up, you're anointed with oil, put your clothes back on, and you walk into this room, and the room is full of these people who not that long ago were total strangers to you and now are so electrified with joy at your presence among them. But these strangers have become brothers and sisters to you. They're people that you've wept with, they're people that you've laughed with, they're people that you now share your life with. That picture is a picture of what baptism looked like right around the year 200. It was captured for us by this guy named Hippolytus in, uh, in a work called the, the Apostolic Tradition. There's a guy named Ben Myers who kind of paints that picture in his, in his work. Do those, those words to which in your imaginary self you responded, I believe, uh, do those words sound familiar to you at all? What do they sound like? This is an open question now, so. Creed. They sound like, sound like the creed. What, which creed? You're right, you can say a little bit louder. What is it? It's the Apostles' Creed, right? So the Apostles' Creed, I don't, I don't, and I don't know what kind of tradition you grew up in. Maybe the tradition you grew up in, you memorized the Apostles' Creed and you know it by heart. Maybe you said it every Sunday and you said it so many times that you have no idea what it says because it meant nothing to you. Or maybe, like me, you grew up in a tradition where uh, we didn't recite the creed at all. The creeds weren't an important part of the way that I thought about what it meant to follow Jesus. Maybe that was a point of pride for you, right? Oh, we don't have a creed here at this church. We just follow the Bible, which, just as a note, is a creed, right? Uh, 
but all, I mean, all the way, almost from the beginning of the, the, from the birth of Christianity, this idea of a creed was central to who we were as a people. That what the creed said is, hey, there's a certain, there are certain beliefs that are core to who we are as a community. And you confess that creed as a way of coming, in, coming into, being engrafted into this community. As an ancient confession, this list of beliefs. And it's guided the church in her worship and in her faith for literally two millennia, nearly 2,000 years. And there are different legends out there about how the creed came to be. Some people uh, kind of have taught that it, it's called the Apostles' Creed because each of the apostles uh, contributed a line, like they all put them in a hat and you drew them out and you're like, well, I guess this is the order we're going in. That is not how we got the Apostles' Creed, right? That what happened was is early on the church said, hey, we've got to, we've got to figure out uh, what it is that makes us who we are, what, what beliefs define us. And there wasn't, the, with the Apostles' Creed, it wasn't a council of bishops, it wasn't people in authority putting on their hats and voting, that this was a grassroots movement amongst churches as they brought people into the faith. And what we have now is the Apostles' Creed was the accumulation of those things over the centuries. It's called the Apostles' Creed because it summarizes the apostolic teaching, what the apostles taught to the people who followed them as a way of following Jesus. And again, confessed across the church, Catholic, Protestant, right, in all kinds of different geographies and all kinds of different times. And this creed, guys, it is incredibly helpful for us because here's what a creed does. A creed is, uh, it's like when you're driving through Nashville and they're building these skyscrapers like they have been for the last 15 years. And you look up and the first thing they do is they put these giant steel beams up into the sky, right? A creed is like this, the steel beams of our faith. It's what we build our faith around. It gives shape to our theology, to what we believe about God. It guides us. It helps us ensure that the, the faith that we're building in our own lives is the same faith that people have been building for 2,000 years. Another way to think about it is that the, the creed, the Apostles' Creed is, is like, uh, it's like an anchor in a stormy sea. It keeps you stable, connected to what's true in the midst of all kinds of upheaval. Because to walk in this world uh, as a person of faith, often feels like walking in a storm, doesn't it? That our beliefs are being pushed and pulled and challenged from all kinds of directions. Even from within the church, we've got this interpretation and that interpretation, and we're wondering, what is true? What can I hold on to? And the Apostles' Creed, it's steadying. It helps us not be capsized not to be dragged back and forth by the waves, not to be made shipwreck of uh, against the rocks. So this summer, what we're gonna do is we're gonna work through the Apostles' Creed kind of line by line. We're gonna preach through it as a way of helping us reinforce those steel structures, right? As a way of keeping us anchored to the bedrock of our faith. Reminding us, what are these core beliefs that define what it means to be a part of the Christian community? Don't worry, we're not gonna, uh, the way that the, the sermons will unfold will be the way that they always unfold, which is uh, by an exposition of the scriptures. So it's not like we're gonna be preaching the creed, we're gonna be preaching the scriptures, but what we believe is that the creed is drawn from the scriptures and also helps reinforce what we believe in them.
to help us develop a firm faith in a turbulent world. Okay, so that's where we're going this summer. That's the new sermon series. That's, it's the Apostles' Creed all summer. So I'm gonna ask our reader to come up. Allie uh, is gonna read for us, and she's gonna read for us out of Psalm 119. This is gonna be verses 105 through 112. So if you have your Bible, you can feel free to turn there. If you have it on your phone, you can scroll there. It will also be up on the screen in front of you for you to follow along. So this is Psalm 119, 105 through 112. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. And we confess that we as a people uh, struggle so much to, to know what to believe, to know how to believe, to know what those beliefs mean for our lives. So Lord, as we uh, open your word, would you speak it to our hearts? Or would you firm our faith uh, for the turbulent world around us? Would you steady us, Lord, comfort us, and encourage us through your Holy Spirit? And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So we're st- as we start the Apostles' Creed, the first words of the Apostles' Creed are, well, I'll ask you, what are they? I believe, right? That's how the Apostles' Creed starts. So that's where we're starting. We're starting small this morning, okay? We're just starting with the I believe. And we're starting there because what you believe, uh, it matters. That what you believe shapes the way that you live your life. And Psalm 119, what Ali just read, it points us to that reality. That the psalmist, the person who, who wrote these lines, is expressing a belief in who God is. And is, and is laying out how that belief shapes the way that he's living his life. That what we believe, uh, it matters. And it's important to highlight here, uh, we all have beliefs. So uh, we talk about, well, we can talk about belief as if it's this thing that people have within the confines of the church, but people outside don't have them. That's not true. Everybody believes in something. In fact, everyone has their own creed, don't they? I think about the signs that we see up in people's yards, right? In this house, we believe X, Y, Z. That's literally a creed, isn't it? They're listing for you. I want you to know these are the things that in this house we believe. And they're putting them up there on a sign because they're saying not only mentally do we assent to these things, but these things shape who we are and how we live. I'm gonna declare it for you. I'm gonna tell you my creed. You think of uh, the American creed? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That's a creed. It's saying this is what we believe. This is who we are as a people. And this confession of what we believe guides and governs the way that we, the way that we live. So everybody has a creed. And the creed that you have is gonna have a profound impact on how you live, on the shape of your life, of how you choose to live and how you experience uh, the world and how it affects you. On what you do and how you 
evaluate and experience what's done to you. Think about uh, the people who took those baptismal vows we talked about earlier. Those beliefs dramatically altered their lives, right? They left one community and entered a new community. They came into a whole new web of relationships, a whole new way of living. They left the paganism that was all around them and they entered into a different set of principles that guided and governed their lives and it didn't make their lives any easier. That confessing these beliefs opened them up to all kinds of ostracism and persecution. Some of the people who took those baptism vows that we read uh, were people who ended up in the Colosseum being eaten by lions. Yeah, what they believed, it mattered. It changed their lives. And it changed the way they experienced their lives because as they were going to the Colosseum, what those people were doing was praying and singing praise to God. What we believe has a profound impact on the way that we live and on the way that we experience what's done to us. And here's what's true about belief. To believe is to trust. To believe is to trust. There is no way out of that. Like for example, do you believe that Abraham Lincoln was a president of the United States of America? Yes, okay. Well, why do you believe that? Did you ever meet Abraham Lincoln? No, right? Have you ever seen Abraham Lincoln? Maybe pictures of him. How do you know that's him though? How do you know that they're showing you the right pictures? This man who's got kind of a, a, a funny mole and a big hat, how do you know if you can even identify him? Is that how do you know he was actually president? Somebody told you. Have you read his letters, right? Have you examined the documents? No, that you're living a life of trust. Now, how much of an impact that has on your day-to-day -day life, that's up for debate, okay? But just to illustrate the point that we are constantly living a life that requires us to trust the people around us. We saw that highlighted in spades during the pandemic, didn't we? That when, we're, when, when people were debating various facts and treatments, the science of it, that the conversation always really, at its root, was about the question, who do you trust? Because even as we were debating the science, um, none of us were doing the experiments, right? You're reading the results that someone else has put out. You're choosing who am I gonna trust? Which expert am I going to trust? Well, I have a friend who is a doctor and she said this. Well, I have a friend who is a doctor and he said this. Did you ever get into any of those conversations? It's all a conversation about who do you believe, which is a conversation about who do you trust? So to live in a world that requires us to believe, to trust, means that we're required to some degree to submit to authority. Because to trust someone is, is to submit to their authority in some way. When you're trusting someone, you're giving that person the ability to influence your belief, to have some authority over you. That is inescapable. So the question is not, will there be other people who have authority in my life? The question is, who are those people? And what is the agenda of those people for you? Is that person trustworthy? 
even if that ultimate authority is yourself. As you distinguish between the authorities you're gonna let govern your life. Which I think raises the very important question, are you a very trustworthy authority for your life? A very trustworthy ultimate authority? I will just say, in my own life, if I look at my track record uh, of governing myself, that when I am left to my own authority, the track record is not great, guys. So when we confess as a church, I believe, what we're saying is, I, I, I trust, I'm giving my authority uh, to God. Actually, it'd be more accurate to say we're not, we're not giving God authority, uh, we're recognizing God's authority over us. And the way that God has chosen to manifest his authority in our lives is through his word. We see that in our text. Don't worry, we are gonna talk about the text, okay? Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word. Do you recognize what a outrageous statement that is? That what the psalmist is claiming is that the words that are in this book the words that are in here are the very words of God. That God himself, the, who by his speaking spoke all of creation into existence, those same powerful, creative, life-giving words are the same words that are in here. The same God who spoke those words spoke these words. Powerful, authoritative, creative, life-giving words that this word is an expression of God's authority over our lives. And believe me, the psalmist knows, okay, the ins and outs of scripture. The psalmist knows that the scriptures were written by, by people who have their own cultural context, their own, their own uh, experiences, right, their own perspectives. The psalmist knows this. And what the psalmist knows and what scripture teaches across the board is that God has used all those circumstances in the lives of these authors to bring us exactly the words he wants for us to have as an expression of his loving authority over our lives. To say, I believe, is to put ourselves under authority. That when we say that together, what we're doing as a church is we're putting ourselves under the authority of God as he speaks to us through his scriptures. But the question that we have to ask is, is this a good authority? Do any of you ever resist authority? Can I get a show of hands? Do we have any? Okay, this is a person thing, right? To resist authority. And it's a person thing. It's also a very, we do that in, in the United States in a very particular way, right? We really struggle with this. That's a culturally conditioned response. There are other places in the world that respond to authority in totally different ways than we do, but let's just acknowledge that for us, responding to authority is hard. We bump up against it, we bristle at it. And some of that is for great reasons that we have all experienced authority that's been wielded in our lives in a way that's hurtful and harmful, haven't we? And it causes us to resent and to resist authority because what we're wondering is, are you trustworthy? Because if you've ever been under the authority of, a, of someone who is good and has good for you, it can be a joy, can't it? That's the best kind of job. 
when you trust your boss and believe that they have your best interests best interests at heart. But when that is not the case, whew. So the question we've got to ask ourselves as we put ourselves under the authority of God, and maybe you're here and you're wondering, why would I want to do that in the first place? Is, maybe you're wondering, is, is God trustworthy? Is he good? Those are important questions to have an answer to, aren't they? As we're trying to figure out who we're going to submit ourselves to, if we're going to submit ourselves to the authority that God has over our lives. In Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, it speaks all about the goodness of the authority that God has over our lives through his word. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What the psalmist is recognizing is that often our experience of life is one of walking in darkness. That is hard for us to know how to live, where to go, and what to do. I feel like as a pastor, some of the questions I get asked most often are, what should I do in this situation? Should I take this job or this job? Should I marry this person or not marry this person? People are always asking, at, the, at this fork in the road, they're asking, God, wh- what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? It feels dark. I, it's uncertain. I don't know what the future holds. That what we're desperate for so often is, is there a guide who is trustworthy who can show me what to do next? Yes. That God's delight, his desire is to lead his people. The metaphor here is that there is a path that we're walking on. And the path is, is bigger uh, than, sometimes we reduce uh, the guidance of God down to uh, what we do in situations that feel really intense, this or this. But the path that we're on uh, is much, much more everyday than that. What the scripture is communicating to us is that we are always walking, we're always moving, we're always moving towards something. And the promise here is that God's word, God's desire and delight through his word is to speak to us about what's right in front of us, what's next, but also to light up where we're going. That in essence, uh, what this scripture is claiming and, and, and what's true is that God in his goodness has invited us into, he's turned the lights on on this bigger story that we're a part of. That through his word as we recognize God's authority we're stepping in, taking our place in this story that God has been writing since the beginning of time. We're finding out who we are in the midst of redemptive history. You know that's true this morning as you are sitting here, <laughs> that what God is speaking to you about is your place overall, your identity as part of his redemptive story? If we're talking about can the authority of God be trusted? Yes. That his desire, his delight is to lead us in the midst of our darkness toward the end that he created for us. Are any of you fans of Lord of the Rings? Okay, I got a few hands in the room. I'm a big fan. Uh, And there's this moment in the book, The Two Towers, okay, 
where uh, Sam and Frodo, these are two hobbits. What a hobbit is is not important. They're just tiny people, okay? And these tiny humans, tiny hobbits, are uh, on a mission that seems far too large for them. That they're on a mission, in essence, to prevent evil from overtaking uh, the whole world. And they feel consistently and constantly overwhelmed by the task. And they find themselves at this critical moment on the edge of, uh, of what feels like a hopeless situation. And they're about to enter more deeply into it. They're wondering, what kind of story are we a part of that at times feels this dark? And this is what one of the, the hobbits says. This is what Sam says about this story. He says, I suppose it's often that way. The brave things in the old tales and songs. Adventures, I used to call them. I used to think that they were things wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for because they wanted them, because they were exciting and life was a bit dull, kind of a sport, as you might say. But that's not the way of it with the tales that really mattered or the ones that stay in the mind. Folks seem to have just landed in them. Usually their paths were laid that way, as you put it. But I expect they had lots of chances, like us, of turning back, only they didn't. We hear about those who went on. And not all to a good end, mind you, at least not to what the folk inside the story, not outside of it, call a good end. Because I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. Isn't that the question that we're asking? What kind of a story am I a part of? And as Sam and Frodo look up at the stars and are thinking back on their own journey, what they realize is we're in the same story still, that it's going on. Don't the great tales ever end? No, they never end as tales, says Frodo. The people in them come and go when their parts ended. But the great tales never end. Now what this scripture is speaking to is your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path, is that what God has done in his goodness and his graciousness toward us is told us the story that we're a part of. The story of the redemption of the world. And that that story is your story, that when we confess the Apostles' Creed, when we say, I believe, we are becoming a part of the story that goes back to the beginning of time and will stretch until the end of time. Where does that path go? Verse 107 says, I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word that the story that we've been invited into, the path that we're on, is a path of life. I was talking to a friend recently who's been uh, in recovery. He said the best part of being in recovery is that you're woken up uh, to life around you. You're able to experience life in a whole new way. You're full of life. He's also said the worst part of recovery is that now you're awake to life. 
to the pain of it, to the hurt of it. And what's true about coming to this story that God has written us into, that he's written a part for us in, is that when we, when we submit to his authority through his word, when we enter into this story, that we begin the journey of becoming full-hearted people, of people who can experience life on life's terms, with all of its joys and all of its sorrows. That's the promise of this path that leads to life. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word means that we've been given hearts that are awake to the realities of life, the good and the bad, the mountains and the valleys. And yet it's more than that. I'm severely afflicted. Give me life according to your word. What the psalmist is crying out is, Lord, I'm in a hard place, a place of suffering, a place of pain. Would you give me life even in the midst of this hard place? And the promise is not that God will take the suffering away, not that he will immediately make it all better, but the promise is that he meets us in it. That's the promise throughout his word, is that even in places of pain, even in places of hardship, even in places of suffering, that God is with us, he's, pr- he's present with us. Paul says it like this in Romans 5. He says, I rejoice in my suffering." For suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That's the promise of God that as we walk this path of life that he is pouring life into us because he's pouring his love into us even in the midst of our suffering. And he says this in verse, the psalmist says this in verse 111. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. So this path that we're walking, right, that God has brought us into, this story that's so much bigger than ourselves, it's a path of life, and the psalmist also tells us it's a path of joy. That God's agenda for our lives is to grow us, to grow us deeper in our capacity to be a people of joy, regardless of the circumstances that we're in. Rejoice always, he says, again I say rejoice that God's agenda for our lives is joy. And so to step in, to, to submit to the authority of God as it's expressed through his word, is to submit to a God whose design for your life is that he would illuminate the path in front of you, that he'd be leading you to a place of hope, that your life would be full of life and that it would be full of joy even in the midst of the things that are hard. Is that a God you can trust? Is that an authority you would want to submit to? Is it? So when we confess, I believe, when we submit ourselves to God and his word, that's what we're submitting ourselves to. And ultimately, like we said, to, to believe is to trust, is, submit to, is to submit to authority, which is always to trust and submit to a person. And when we come to the scriptures, what we're, not, we're not submitting ourselves to a set of rules or a set of stories. We're submitting ourselves to a person. That person is Jesus Christ, who John calls in the first chapter of his gospel, the word of God. That Jesus is God's self-revelation to mankind. 
He's God in human form. That as he lived, as he walked, as he taught, as he spoke, that what he was showing us is the character of God, who God is. Think about how Jesus describes himself. I am the light of the world. That's a, that's a fulfillment here of Psalm 119, isn't it? That Jesus himself is the lamp to, to our feet and the light to our path. He is the one who is illuminated, who has brought light into the darkness and showed us our part in the story. I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord. Jesus says of himself, I'm the resurrection and the the life. Yeah, we are given life in all of our circumstances because we've been given Jesus who is himself our life. Your testimonies are my heritage forever for they are the joy of my heart. You know that Jesus stepped in uh, to our story. That when he, when he put on flesh, when he came amongst us, he said not only is God outside of the story, but that God is in the story and he's in it with you. And the, in the midst of his affliction, when he called out for life, uh, he was not given it. What he was given was death. But he was given death for, this, for the joy that was set before him is what the author of Hebrews tells us. And do you know uh, what the joy was that was set before him? It was you. That you were his joy. That you are the one in whom Christ delights in. This is a Jesus who is always with you, who promises that by his Holy Spirit that you are never walking alone on this path of obedience that you've been called into. Can this authority be trusted? Yes. He's in us. He's among us. That he himself is our light and our joy and our life. When we confess, I believe, that is what we are confessing our belief in, is that we've given our trust to, that we've chosen to submit to the authority of Jesus, of our living Jesus who speaks to us through his word. And as we submit ourselves to that authority, it changes us. It changes our minds, it changes our hearts, and it changes our wills. It changes all about who we are as a person. And the psalm points to all of those different things. Verse 108, teach me your rules. What the psalmist is saying is, Lord, uh, influence my mind. Teach me what to think and teach me how to think. Because the scriptures do both of those things. We see in the creed, right? It's a statement of belief. Here are the things that we are called to believe about Jesus. Yes, to believe about God. Yes, to believe about the Holy Spirit. Yes, these are the things that we are called to believe. Scripture gives us those things. It gives us the things that we are called to believe, what to think, but it also teaches us how to think. Right, like how to think about money. Scripture does not, it does not provide a budget blueprint for you, does it? 
I wish it did because I could certainly use one. But it doesn't give us a budget blueprint. It just teaches us this is how you can think about money. That money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's an important thing to know about money, isn't it? That money can be a distraction for our hearts. That money can lead us astray. That money can be a thing that we become greedy for, jealous of, that we covet. That it can become a way that we try to control our lives and the lives of those around us. That's a good thing to know about money, that money can be a dangerous thing. But what scripture also teaches us is that money can be a very powerful gift. That money is something that God has given you to sustain your life. Thank God. What an important tool. He's given it to you for you and also to bless the people around you. And that what he's taught us about money is the importance of being generous. That when we open up our hands, when we give freely out of what we have been given, that it releases the hold that money has on our hearts. You see what I'm saying? So scripture teaches us what to think, but it also teaches us how to think. Now how you flesh that out in your life and your budget, I have no idea. But God wants to speak to you about that. He wants to teach you about that, to form your mind about that. Does the Bible tell you how to discipline your children? No. It does not tell you what consequences you need to use to discipline them. Spare the rod, spoil the child. You don't have to use a rod, okay? But what it does teach you is that disciplining your children is important. That has to be done. Now how you work that out? A lot of leeway there. You see what I'm saying? So scripture, it teaches us what to think. It also teaches us how to think. Romans 12, 2 says it like this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what scripture does is it transforms, it renews our mind, but it also impacts our heart. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. That God cares about not only how we think, but the direction of our feeling. Right? What scripture would teach us is that we all have desire that is deep within us and that desire is like a fast flowing river. It's not like the Cumberland winding around Nashville, right? We're talking about like Grand Canyon style, Colorado River at flood level, not as it currently is. Right? Weaving through rapids, that's the desire of your heart. It's true. And then what the scriptures do is they direct our desire. They don't eliminate it. They don't squash it. That what God says here is I have, I, I desire, I delight through my word to shape the way that your desire flows and that it would flow in a way that would bring life to you and the people around you. God cares about our minds, he cares about our hearts, and he cares about our will. He cares about how we actually live and walk in the world. I have sworn, I have sworn, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. That what God desires desires for us in a, is a harmony in the way that we think, in the way that we feel and desire, and the way that we live. That our lives, our actions, our choices would be shaped in the direction of God's word, of his law. And that in doing that, we find ourselves walking in this, in this path that he's laid out, walking in the story that he's given us. Friends, my, my hope and our prayer for us as a congregation as we confess, I believe, is that we would be a people who would grow in our hunger for God's word. 
that we would recognize its importance in our lives as something that God uses to speak his loving and gracious, life-giving, light-giving, joy-giving authority to in our lives. And that because of that, we would desire to come to it. That we would desire to to listen to it, right? To hear it preached. That we would desire uh, to read it for ourselves. To study it. To memorize it. To meditate on it. I love this picture of meditating on scripture. I had a friend share this illustration with me one time. Um, So, you know, cows, right? Uh, Cows eat grass. They chew on grass all day. Over and over and over again. And they chew, on, fun fact about cows, they chew on the same grass all day because they have so many stomachs. They'll chew it, swallow it, spit it back up, chew it again. Just keep chewing the same thing day, well not day after day, but all day. That, that's what it means to meditate on God's word. To have it before us, to chew on it, to chew on it, chew on it, to swallow it, chew on it again, to keep chewing, keep chewing, keep chewing because what God desires to do is to give us life through his word. And that through that process of meditating, not by emptying our minds, but by filling our minds by what is true and rolling it over and over and over, asking about it, thinking about it, questioning it, applying it, that we find ourselves walking in this path that God has laid out for us, a path of light, a path of life, and a path of joy. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Lord, we are a people who are often uh, can feel like walking in darkness. We praise you and thank you, Lord, that you have given us light. Lord, that you desire to bring life and that you desire to bring joy into our lives. And we pray, Lord, that even as we worship this morning, that you would uh, fan those things into a flame in our heart, that you'd be shaping our minds, Lord, our hearts and our wills as your people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.